Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. My parents gave me an extraordinary name. Baratunde Rafik Thurston. It's so strange. I hadn't really... You're helping me discover something. Watch this. You're welcome. I know how to make people feel good. I, I think I have a nice smile. And I'm a diffusing black dude, right? I'm not the angry black dude. That's that's my friend, you know, who's gonna, who will punch you in the face if I'm not there. <laughs> the white woman who called the police and the black real estate investor, we would all be better off. The cops agree if she had simply ignored him and minded her own damn business. <laughs> Is that person an activist? You know, would they put that on their LinkedIn? Do you put it on your LinkedIn? That's the test. Do I'm, you? What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. The rousing words of William Shakespeare there from Romeo and Juliet. Nope, you haven't woken up in your high school English Lit 101 class. I'm Aisha Sasei, and you're actually listening to The Accidental Activist, the show where we discover the sparks that ignite people's passion to change the world. Welcome, everyone. This week, I'm joined by writer and comedian Baratunde Thurston, who not only wrote the New York Times bestseller, How to Be Black, but also delivered one of the greatest TED Talks ever. I think about these headlines. Police shoot another unarmed black person, and I don't want to join them. At various points in his life, he's been called Barrington, then Barry, before returning to his birth name of Baratunde. And as you shall discover, a great deal can be loaded into a single name. In fact, it may possess the power to subtly orient the trajectory of a life's journey. Well, Baratunde knows exactly where he wants to get to. A world which not only works better, but benefits us all. And he's on a mission to inspire everyone he can to do their part towards making that happen. While many of us share the same mission, I think that the way Baratunde communicates his intention is entirely his own. And that's why I really wanted him to be a guest on my show. He's quite simply a gifted communicator with a truly inclusive approach to activism. This is one of those conversations where I laughed a lot and learned a great deal more about the power of mothers, the power of our emotions, and ultimately, the power of self. I hope you enjoy the show. Ayrton Day Thurston, welcome to The Accidental Activist. Thank you for having me, Aisha. It's so good to be here. Not on Thank accident. You. I'm here on purpose, though. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> this is intentional. Person. This is intentional. <laughs> yes. Everything, and that's what we're going to be talking a lot about, intentionality and setting an intention and going after it. Mm. I was thinking about the work you do and your existential mission of 
activating people to do better, to be better, to show up better. Essentially, what you're, you're telling people, it seems to me, is to change the system, to change what is. And it got me thinking about you as a child. And mm. when was the first time you rejected authority? <laughs> uh, the first thing that came to my mind. Oh, boy. So I was, I think I was five years old. I was injured. I burned my left foot, third degree burns. Oh, uh, dear. I'll never, it was, it's one of my earliest memories and, and one of my most painful memories. And I remember the ambulance ride and going to Children's Hospital. This is in Washington, D.C., where I grew up with my mom. And in recovery from the surgery, the skin graft surgery, I'm in a room that feels way too big, way too big. And my mother had brought me some food from home, which was raisins and nuts and honey. And I decided that it'd be more fun and useful to throw the food across the room instead of put it in my mouth. And it started with just like one raisin. And I just <laughs> threw the raisin. I was like, that was thrilling. So I did another raisin and then like a peanut and then an almond. By the time she came back into the room, all this food that she had like smuggled into the hospital was just all over the floor. And she was livid. And I don't even know why I did it. I just kind of slipped into it. But that was the first, that's my first memory of an act of defiance. <laughs> there was no for the greater good involved in that. I wasn't trying to liberate any, I guess I was trying to liberate those raisins uh, <laughs> because they deserved to live another day outside of anybody's digestive system. But yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's what you got. That's, and I, have, I have other stories, but that's that the fantastic. one that came up first. But I do think, actually, that food is an area where children assert independence Absolutely. quite early on, right? Yeah. We, we see those things. That's where you see children say no or seal their mouths and cross their arms and say, I'm not eating that. And I think I remember being about six and rice was a very big thing in our household. Mm -hmm. I'm West African and rice is a daily, is a daily yes. treat or yes. chore, depending on where you are that day. And... Um, Remember my, you know, the same thing. You have to eat your, your, your meal. You have to eat everything. And sliding open the window and pouring <laughs> all, all the rice out. And oh, I was wow. like. So disrespectful. Wow. I was like, nope, nope. That will, that's not how this is going down. But what did your mother say to you? And I guess the question that goes on from that is, what did she teach you about authority? So... <laughs> In that case, I mean, I think there's a couple of lessons, but the lesson kind of of that moment, certainly one that she would repeat to me often, actually not in that moment, was question authority. Like that was something my mother stressed with me and my teachers in, in school, with Boy Scout troops, with whoever, not so much her, but any other kind of authority, you know, they, there's no one has a right to put their hands on you is something she repeated a lot. And there was a teacher in my middle school who grabbed me to try to teach me a lesson uh, of some kind and grabbing me what didn't need to be part of the lesson. And I... she was upset with me for goofing off in the cafeteria. And my mother was upset with her. She's like, nobody has a right to put their hand on you. If they do, they've just given you their hand. Oh, right. It was like some, you know, 
Morpheus type stuff. Right? Totally. <laughs> and and so she 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 was insistent on my autonomy and and on some sense of boundaries and dignity that I deserved. My mother's similar to yours in that sense of helping me at the very youngest of ages understand my own voice was mm. valid. Yeah. And me questioning was right. I think where she maybe deviates from your mother a little bit is being West African and the culture, which is battling this whole thing of children's voices being heard versus, yeah, you know, you and don't really so have the right to speak exactly. So she's telling me you're you are empowered, and then when you're in class and the teacher says something wrong and you question and you get written up, she's like, Aisha, why? And I'm like, because you told me to. <laughs> I learned me, it from watching you. You told me that I could speak up. And now you're saying, yes, yes, but you have to choose the moment. So there is that confusion. Yeah. You know, is it full empowerment or is it conditional empowerment? Cond yeah, it's like you have to be strategic with your power. And you're like, but I'm eight. So what is strategic? <laughs> but it is a lesson for us as adults, right? About yeah. being strategic in how we use our voices. Well, and and I, I wonder for you, what, what did your household maybe specifically your mom but certainly your household teach you that you didn't understand then that as an adult you're like oh it, it resonates in a different way because you've experienced some things i think what i learned as a child from sierra leone west africa one of the poorest countries in the world but the difference is we as black people are the majority mm. And so you don't grow up in a culture where the system and the structure signals to you or shows you on a daily basis that you are a minority or you're inferior, you shouldn't go here or you shouldn't go there. And I think what my mother taught me, and I think in a more active sense than maybe some of my peers, is that you are, you are powerful, you are, again, you are valid, you are right, you, there is, nobody is better than you. Like yeah. she taught me that lesson in such a profound way that is woven into my DNA that I have found myself in workplaces in Europe and America where for white people who are unaccustomed because their engagement with certain black people has been different, they have said to me, they don't understand my level of self-confidence. <laughs> They're like, well, you're <laughs> supposed to be broken by now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've actually had that said in a review. Wow. Where they said, um, people say they don't really understand why you feel so confident. I'm like, <laughs> that's, that's, what, that's I revealing. grew up in a home where that's what I was taught. Yeah. And what about you? Um, I think I didn't understand a lot of what my mother was trying to do. And she's not alive for me to confirm it, but, I, but I've Sorry. inferred that she was trying to teach me and show me a range of experiences, uh, a range of emotions, a range of senses of power. And I actually too grew up with a strong sense of confidence and a sense of self-worth. Yes. My mother crafted these experiences that other parents thought of as weird. Uh, we're going to go camping. Like martial like, arts. We're going to go hiking. We're going to put you in this Taekwondo class. We're going to put yeah. you in this Aikido class before the Taekwondo class. This youth orchestra program, this Boy Scouts thing. And, you know, I, I think of her as like the Black Tiger Mom, which makes her a Panther yes. Mom in my translation. <laughs> I love that. But 
looking back, I'm like, oh, I, but I lived some of the possibility that others only hear about. And it didn't take money. It took time, which is a limited resource for some families. But it also took will and creativity and and risk and sort of breaking out of prescribed roles. And so I found myself as a kid sometimes just being like a little annoyed or, or just not even thinking about it. But as an adult, I'm like, was she a genius? Yes. Or Or did she just... Was she fuddling through and not even consciously aware of what she was doing, but felt in some intuitive sense, like, I got to show this kid more and and he will figure it out later what that means for him. And I'm, I'm starting to figure out it means a lot. It does. I'm inclined to think that your mother had some knowing because just in naming you, Arotunde <laughs> yeah. Rafiq Thurston, which, okay, the last name she didn't have much to do with, right. but the Barotunde Listen, let me just say, because you talk a lot about stereotypes and blackness, and yeah. I thought I was getting myself a Nigerian brother <laughs> on this show, and I was going to throw all my little Nigerian catchphrases, and then he's like, listen, I'm not Nigerian. Yeah. I'm not. And I'm yeah. like, welcome to the club of disappointed <laughs> Africans. <laughs> it is vast, especially West Africans, particularly Nigerians. Yeah, that's... Uh, that's a fun. That's a fun trick uh, I've pulled pass- passively but, my entire life. But the name in the naming of you in and of itself, I see as an act of resistance. Mm. Do you? Yeah, um, a resistance and assertion. Yes. Um, I I think she led the effort. You know, my father I think went along with it. Uh, the more I've learned about him, who, as you alluded to, you know, died when I was young as well didn't really know him much but my mother I got to know and it's like yeah she was the one who led that effort the the naming ceremony so there was a lot of meaning wrapped up in the name from what the book said this book of african names that a lot of uh, black americans started reading in the I never 60s had that book <laughs> you don't know <laughs> yeah so she you know the the book claimed certain things about the, the origin of this name this you know baba tunde uh, yoruba name originally and what it could mean, father returns, which meant a lot to her. She was honoring her grandfather, but also one who was chosen. And I was uh, born after a series of miscarriages. So it was quite a relief when I finally arrived. And I think, you know, to your language about resistance, I've always interpreted my name because it's funny what your parents say your name means and then how we choose to interpret it ourselves. And just given the moment and the mood, and for a woman born in 1940, when there was no plausible black power movement that would be celebrated in any way, shape, or form, to uh, uh, her second child born in 77, her first born in 68, there's a journey there. Absolutely. And, and a journey of reclamation, I think, and undoing the miseducation of so many uh, American Negroes to, to play off that title. So, yeah, it's like I can't get to Africa, but I can bring Africa to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I can embed it on this here birth certificate, and I'll <laughs> always have the continent nearby. When you were in school in D.C., you went yeah. to Sidwell Friends. Um, is it true they called you Barrington? They started off with Barrington. So that is not a Sidwell innovation. Um, okay. Actually, Barrington came from my public school Black teacher. No way. That was the first alteration, uh, Barrington. And so I was Barrington through my grade school. Grade. And then Barry came from, uh, I don't know who 
created Barry. But I assume it was a different lazy teacher. <laughs> and when did you reject? This? I rejected it in eighth grade. So essentially, I, I went to one school for first through sixth grade. That was my neighborhood public school. Starting in seventh grade, I started traveling across town to go to this private school, Sidwell Friends. So they met me already rebranded as Barry. And, as and not Barry. As Baratunde. I mean, I mean it's, it's good company. Barack Obama, he was called Barry. He time. was, but you know, we didn't know that then. <laughs> <laughs> if you knew was, then, what you know I, now. I was used to it. The problem was it's, Sidwell gave me, it's so strange. I hadn't really, you're helping me discover something. Watch this. You're welcome. Sidwell restored some keys to my blackness to me. Explain. Um, I got to this school in seventh grade. It was in the rich neighborhood in DC. It was across town. I had to take two buses to get there. The principal of the middle school was a black dude named Bob Williams. I would learn later the reason my mother was comfortable with me going to Sidwell is because of Bob Williams, that she was like, here's a real black dude. He's real black. <laughs> He's going to take care of my boy. <laughs> and, you know, father figure, like I don't yeah. have a father around. So she's always sensitive to a positive male influence for me that I could sort of model myself after. Bob Williams was a part of an organization, a semi-secret society called Ankobia, which uh, was this Pan-African group. In, off of Georgia Avenue in Northwest Washington, D.C., of a bunch of folks, very politicized, very Afrocentric Black folk who were doing reclaiming things, including how do we usher our young people into adulthood? How do we keep them off the streets and off of drugs and out of the gangs and give them some kind of ritual that's been taken from them? And so many of them partnered with or studied from West African societies, Ghanaian in particular, but all kinds of mixing of things. And uh, they created this program, uh, this rites of passage program, one for girls, one for boys. And, and Mr. Williams, known as Baba Jawanza within the society, told my mother about this program and she enrolled me immediately. So when I started going to Sidwell, I also started going to this Uncle Bia program. I wouldn't have known about that. Absolutely hyper black environment were not for this hyper white environment. Yes. And, and so going to that every Saturday, I, I joke about it in my book, I call it Hebrew school for blackness. Yes. And so we spend hours, you know, physical drills, reading books, lessons of all kinds, a little militaristic. And then showing up at Sidwell on Monday for very different types of lessons. It created a conflict in me. And I was like, wait, this whole thing is like asserting your Africanness and your blackness and your your no, your nobleness and your in integrity as a being, I can't be Barry, you know. I can't be. Yeah. So Doesn't I started really ring the true. process of converting the school, the Sidwell, to those kids to call me Baratunde because I definitely wasn't Barry at Ankobia. How did your notions, your relationship to be your blackness? How has that evolved from that time to now? At that age, I was learning and trying really hard to be really Black. Uh, that program sparked something that was already, it, it fueled something that was already sparked by my mother, uh, just with the name thing and our own like family activities. And then the contrast, like taking that and then dipping it into Sidwell Friends, 
that's uh that's interesting, you know. <laughs> and so I I showed up somewhat militant, self-righteous. I was leading all the black clubs. I was very political, very activisty kid increasingly during my time at Sidwell. And I was just burning off a lot of anger and a lot of energy and seeing all these contradictions and asserting constantly pushing up against some boundary. And I was yelling at my black friends. Why aren't you coming to the black student union meeting? You sit here black. You want to play <laughs> basketball? Is playing basketball as black as you? I mean, I was a wow. trip. I was a trip. And I don't know, you know, I still was also friendly and warm. But my memory of myself is I was also very strident, very self-righteous and, and very energized. Over time, uh, that cooled a bit. And there's this metaphor that's kind of emerging to me where like the oncobianness and the household was hot, right? And it's like kind of dipping metal and, and, and very hot. And then Sidwell was cold right. and Harvard, where I went to college, was cold and America's cold. And the combination just is forging. And I think it made me stronger to have such high contrast environments. It didn't have to end that way. And it's not over. I'm not dead. But it didn't have to lead down this path. It could have just broken me and, and scrambled a lot of stuff in me and had me doubting everything. And it, it hasn't. I think I have a core that's still very Uncle Pia in mm -hmm. there and a sense of self and self-worth like you do as well. And a sense of uh, my Blackness is absolutely intact and essential to my being and my definition of it is as wide ranging and open as the sets of experiences that my mother seeded in me so so early so it gives me a sense of uh, groundedness and a little bit of freedom but the fire's still burning in there too <laughs> I i'm yelling at all these talks and i'm doing zoom meetings with all these companies how do we be not racist? Just stop. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's not that hard. Just stop. Yeah, yeah. Just stop. From Baratunde's stories of having a strong and fearless black mother to the foundational impact of our childhood environments, there was so much he said that I identified with in this first half of our conversation. One of the things I was most struck by was his childhood journey to reclaim his name going from Baratunde to Barrington to Barry before coming full circle. Of course, he was reclaiming so much more than a mere name. Baratunde was asserting his sense of self and values. He was lucky enough to answer the questions of who he is and what he believes in while he was still a child. But even in adulthood, not everyone has managed to figure out all those questions. Now, I don't think that it should trigger a full-on existential crisis, but I will say that knowing yourself and being sure of what you stand for is of foundational importance when navigating the messy world of activism. It brings essential clarity, and you can never have too much of that. It's time for a quick break now, but when we come back, we're getting into our feelings, and Baratunde will explain why he believes we could all do with letting a little more anger into our lives. 
The Accidental Activist is exclusively sponsored by our friends at Mercedes-Benz. Mercedes-Benz is an active supporter of gender equality and women's empowerment, starting from within. Nicolette Lombretz, Vice President and Managing Director of Mercedes-Benz Vans USA, and Diana DiPrio, Vice President of Customer Services, are just two examples of leading women who have pioneered their careers while advancing at the company. Nicolette joined Mercedes-Benz over 20 years ago as a graduate trainee, while Diana started out 30 years ago as a vehicle sales planner. Having worked their way up to top leadership roles at the company, they know just how important it is to be heard and the power of using your voice. Through mentorship programs and networks that foster trust and community, both Nicolette and Diana have become internal sponsors of diverse initiatives that support women in the automotive industry. Their efforts are part of a larger, ongoing commitment from the company towards gender equality. Thank you, Mercedes-Benz, for partnering with The Accidental Activist and for supporting those driving change. Hey, listeners, Aisha here. If you like this show, you should check out In Case You Missed It, Slate's podcast about internet culture. It's a show for people who have a healthy relationship with the internet, made by people who really, really don't. It's hosted by Slate, Madison Malone Kircher and Rachel Hampton. Twice a week, they'll explore what's trending at the top of your feeds, investigate the ghosts of the internet past and help you sound like the smartest person in your group chat. Episodes drop every Wednesday and Saturday. Search ICYMI wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Accidental Activist and part two of my conversation with writer and comedian Baratunde Thurston. But where does the title of activist fit in, I hear you asking? Well, you're about to find out. He has got activists listed on his website. On there, Baratunde describes himself as writer, activist, comedian. But it's complicated. Now, is it as complicated as Amanda Seals' relationship with the term activist? I think it's best to let you be the judge of that. You embrace the title of activist, though. You call yourself an activist? Yeah, I do. Oh, you pause, I... though. So I do. What's your relationship? It is, it is between warmth and trepidation. I think that... I'm working with the tools I have to help shift some systems that need shifting. And, and a lot of that's through media, narrative, storytelling, uh, bad jokes, right? So there's, there's that. And then I worked on political campaigns and I've spewed all kinds of stuff on social media and I've dialed for dollars and signatures and things that I think we interpret formally as activism. Uh, I've done some marching. It's not my primary method, though. Um, and so I, the trepidation comes in because there are people who I think are full-time activists. And like, it's their life's work. It's what like Harry Belafonte is an right. activist. That's so right. I'm, I'm not Harry Belafonte. <laughs> Can I use the same you know word to describe? Uh, so how do you define it? 
So, so, so I speaking. think, well, like, like a lot, I think there's a range and I don't think there's one way to be black. I don't think there's one way to be an activist. And I think there's ways to use your power to benefit more than just yourself, to use your influence, to try to shift systems toward fairness and away from unfairness, toward freedom and away from oppression. And that's what I aspire to do. I think that is what I do a lot. It's not what I do every second. Sometimes I'm just trying to pay bills. Sometimes mm -hmm. I'm just goofing off. And I think that's fine. So you're helping me find my footing on it because I don't go around thinking about it a ton. Every once in a while, though, you know, I'll be in a room of what I think of as like a real activist. <laughs> and then I'm, oh, because you got hit in the head, you know, by, by the cops. I wasn't even there to be in a position to get hit in the head. You got the bruises to prove it. But that, you know, I, I even challenged my own interpretation there. I'm like, is that, is that all it means? Yes. You know? I mean, and I think it's worth challenging that because I also want to posit the idea that if we hold Harry Belafonte up as the living embodiment, we're using him as an example, but yeah. a very good one of activism, where does it leave others who, yeah. you know, it, it becomes the barrier to entry is super high. Too high, too high. You know, when I talk about, you know, I've been, I like to reinterpret words. So citizen, I have this podcast, How to Citizen. Yeah. Part of the purpose of that is to give people an entry point that feels less intimidating because activism objectively means a lot of things, but primarily I think we interpret it as this full-time, very serious March centric yes. <laughs> way. Like, yes. Of physically combative. Yeah. Physically combative. Yeah. You know? and, or even social medialy combative. Yes, like absolutely. If you, if you do anything fun on social media, you're not an activist anymore. And, and that it, it involves some, permanent sacrifice it involves some sacrifice involves some investment because i prefer to think of it that way because the returns are amazing freedom amazing <laughs> <laughs> i didn't even put a price tag on that and we've tried but uh yeah, yeah indeed some try. people did a real yeah <laughs> um but amanda seal says she's on the show and yeah. she is now leery wary of activism because of First of all, she says two things. One, everybody, everybody's an activist now. Mm -hmm. there's, there's that, which she feels is in some ways devaluing the word. Although I don't think it devalues the action, but she says it devalues the word. But she also says there's this thing where, to your point about sacrifice, she wants nice things. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love Amanda. She's like, I want nice things. And there is that sense that if I'm an activist, that it becomes exclusionary, kind of binary. Yeah. That, yeah. And I don't know what you think about that. Well, I, th I think that the lever here is kind of full-time, part-time, occasional. Yes. And I don't know that it matters. Here's what I really think. I think if we're going to actually make this nation and this world work better for more people, just real basic, just work better for more people, we need more moments of activism from more people. I don't think we need billions of people to become full-time activists and renounce anything that doesn't align with their chosen field of activism forevermore. I know we need more people to participate and show up and invest in our shared reality and make it better. 
And that requires more moments of activism. That, that could be shareholder activism for an investor. That could be, we're putting our money in this type of company that's way more green tech, clean tech than, than this one that's helped destroy the environment for us and for our descendants. That's a moment of activism. Is that person an activist? You know, would they put that on their LinkedIn? I don't know. There's, do you put it on your LinkedIn? That's the test. And I think, you know, I'm, do I'm you? in dialogue still with myself because I don't know that I need the label, right? If my, the reason that it's on my website, you know, and the reason writer, activist, comedian is kind of, I've struggled to define myself for others for a long time, especially professionally. It's like, what do, you do all these things. What are you? <laughs> what do you do? And so I just try to pick some words that signal <laughs> yes. intention and direction and shut people up. When I first started out, I called myself a uh, vigilante pundit. Oh. <laughs> and folks are like, what does that mean? And I, was like, I don't know, I'm a poet, I guess. Because <laughs> you know? I was like, I was kind of a pundity talking stuff about the news, but I was much more aggressive about it and did it without license. You know, I was a vigilante pundit. Like, I don't need you. You're a rebel. CNN. You're a rebel. Yeah, rebel pundit. But nobody <laughs> understood that. So I'm like, people know simple words. They know writer. They know comedian. An activist signals a level of like political engagement so they don't think they're just getting like a funny person because I'm not, I'm kind of funny sometimes, You're but it's funny. Not, I'm not just that either. You know, so, so my struggle with and dialogue around that word isn't just about the political intention of it. It's also like, how do I define myself so under, others understand what I do? And that word has become part of the shorthand, but it's always um, up for editing. So we'll see what happens after we talk. I told you it was complicated. So Baratunde rightly questions whether the label activist has become loaded with connotations of being March-centric, full-time, and very serious. I personally don't find such associations off-putting. I think this is where knowing who you are and your values is important. You know what applies to you and what doesn't. One can debate the expansive nature of activists, but perhaps most critical of all is the need to not let names, titles, or terms put you off from becoming a change agent. More people need to take a more inclusive view of activism. We need more people to know that with or without the title of activist, whatever you can do, no matter where you sit in society, is invaluable. And then as a collective, we get to create the impact that the world so badly needs. The point you make about full-time, part-time and how much value you ascribe to how much time you put in, again, that's, that's up for debate. I think the thing that I think about when I claim activist is whether the connotation of that is that I'm angry. Mm. You know, and how that taps into the trope of angry black woman, which mm. I have to say, I don't have a problem with, by the way, just for the record. Because <laughs> you're uh, very self-confident. I'm good with that. But you, what, one thing that I, I've always been struck by when I've listened to you, and the first time I heard you, I was in London, and you okay. popped up. And I remember thinking, you were talking about how to citizen. And I thought, my goodness, what, an, what a profound individual. But what really struck me, it wasn't so much your words was actually your tone and how much warmth and empathy you bring to your work of activism. Whereas I talk about the anger and how sometimes yeah. I feel that that might be taking me over the edge. How <laughs> do you 
not bring anger to your work? Oh boy. Yeah. For most of my life, I have known that I have diplomatic tendencies. My mother would deploy me based on those skills. She would get hot and angry much quicker than me with something with a neighbor, with something with a company. Put me on the phone, have me write the letter. She used me in that way. And I think others noticed that. And for most of my life, I've seen my diplomacy as a, as a feature and an asset. And I'm like, yeah, I guess I'm just like naturally calm and I know how to make people feel good. I, I think I have a nice smile and I'm a diffusing black dude, right? I'm not the angry black dude. That's, that's my friend you know, who's gonna, who will punch you in the face if I'm not there. So you're really glad I'm here. However, anger is valuable. And to deny it out of a sense of superiority or uh, not needing it, I think is short-sighted. And one of the things I've been seeing recently is that my lack of anger isn't just a, is, is not only a good thing, it's also a limitation. And it's something that's been cultivated very subconsciously and very, very, very effectively. Can you point where? I wow. think I've received a lot of messages that if I'm angry, I put myself at risk. So why would I do that? It's just survival. Being kind <laughs> and generous and thoughtful are good things. And I will take some credit for being many of those things much of the time, but also it's self-interest, it's survival. Right. It's I've seen other people get beat down. I don't want that. I've certainly seen enough news reports to know what happens if I just move too suddenly. And you talk about so, that in your TED talk, right? The, the, how just living yeah, can be dangerous. the threat. But I, I've just been thinking in the past, you know, in the, in the pandemic times when we had a lot more time to do things like think, that uh, maybe there's also an element of suppressing my anger out of a sense of survival. And I can see parts of my life where it's not been helpful, where I don't assert where I withhold or hold back or don't claim my space because I'm like, well, I don't want to put somebody out and act like I'm a Midwesterner or something. I'm not, you know, I'm from DC, <laughs> right? Like, it's yeah, interesting so, you so say anger that. is useful and, and, and it is playing in key moments in my life. It's played a very powerful role. I think like. the last piece of this for me, at least now is learning to convert the anger. Right. So I think there's suppression, which over time is bad. It ends up in illness, you know, and, and all kinds of angst. Um, allowing for the anger, as with any emotion, it's human and, and we should experience all the emotions. What do we do with the anger? I want to weave the idea of anger or the tool of anger into your podcast, How to Citizen, mm. because you have these four pillars which you, you've kind of built the show. And, and actually, you explain the show and where the pillars sit, because I want to, want to ask you where you would fit anger into those pillars. <laughs> I, I know where it goes. Now that <laughs> we've just had this little back and forth. Uh, yeah, the show was born just over a year ago. It's, it feels like we've been doing this for a long time, we being my wife, Elizabeth, and I. So I had conceived of a show called Citizen that was made for television. We shot pilots. We had a staff. It was great. And it doesn't exist because Hollywood is dumb. 
Uh, I agree. And we asked for their permission, so we were done. <laughs> so I agree. We're, we were both fools. <laughs> However, the spirit of that, you know, was reborn as a podcast, as all great failed TV shows are. <laughs> and to define what it meant, uh, Elizabeth and I sat down at her whiteboard. We each have a large whiteboard in our home offices because we're that couple. And we're like, so what is what do we believe? No, like we can't just propose to tell people how to citizen and we don't know what it what it's grounded in. What are our principles? Is there a constitution for this new nation of a podcast that we're building? So we came up with these four. The first is that to citizen is to show up and participate, that we presume a role for ourselves in our society. And it's not just outsourcing. The second is that we invest in relationships with ourselves, with others, and with the planet around us, that we don't citizen alone. Right. Uh, that is the opposite because citizenship is a collective kind of project. A relational uh, exercise. Relational exercise. Yes. Team sport. Third is we understand power and the many levels of it and that there are different ways to exercise it. Voting, one very important way, but one of many. Spending money, giving attention, giving time, who we associate with, all these are forms of power. I actually think every decision that we make is an exertion of some kind of power. To click or not to click, that is the question. You're going to give your power to this page or that page. Yep. And lastly, that we, we kind of combine these first three and we, we do all this to benefit the collective and not just the individual. And, and that's the goal of taking that word, citizen, which has been so used to divide and separate us from each other, children from parents, was conscious and, and not easy. Because I was like, do we really want to use citizen given immigration and customs enforcement activities. Mm -hmm. uh, not to mention globally what's happening with migrants. And we came to yes, because we're reinterpreting it. It's not that legal noun for us, it's the verb. Right. Um, and you can citizen without having official papers. <laughs> some, some of the best people are, and maybe they unlock the legal code and maybe they don't, but we're better for their participation. So that's a... Uh, a tight-ish summary of the of the principles and the project of the show. And anger? Anger is power. That's what I was going to say. Anger is a form of power. I, I feel that your podcast and this podcast, Accidental Activists, are podcast siblings, if you will. Yeah, in that we're family. We're family. And in the sense that it's born out of a belief that, I, I think I can say this, and correct me if I'm wrong, that we believe that there is a room for people to reimagine something better. Is that what you're about, Aisha? That's what I'm trying to do. Help people reimagine and access their power and help them yeah. understand that no matter where you sit, in the grid, in the pyramid, in the structure, we are not powerless. Then, yeah, we are, we are kindred. Yes. Absolutely. And thank you. Because we need so many people doing some part of that. <laughs> we can never have enough. And the reimagination is one, it's just a beautiful word. Like imagination, if you think of like it is kids mm -hmm. and crayons and play. And and, and and bubbles, blowing bubbles. Blowing bubbles and picturing something that isn't yet. And you know, the other interesting thing I think to come back to the title, activism, accidental activist. Sometimes activism is interpreted as against 
It's this negative interpretation of the world. We're going to stop this. We're going to stop a pipeline. We're going to end sexism. We're going to halt something as opposed to what are we going to initiate? Instead of stopping the construction, what are we going to construct? What are we going to build? And reimagining that's that's co-creative there. That's Absolutely. now now it's playtime. We got our hands dirty. There's finger painting. There's glitter. There's glue. And we can come up with the world that we would prefer to be living in. And that's it's a positive. It's an affirmative activism. So on that, we are also related. Yeah. In this work of reimagining, in this work of citizenry and activism, there is a need for patience. Mm. <laughs> How are you doing on that patience thing? Uh, depends on the day. One thing I've also learned over the past couple of years is to allow myself those emotions. And I have felt a pressure to perform togetherness or having it togetherness and just being buttoned up. I'm like, I got this. Well, sometimes I don't got this. Sometimes I'm just pissed. What do you sometimes. tell yourself on the days where it's hard? I sometimes just cry actually. So yeah, sometimes that day ends like that. Not every day ends happy. And other times I remember we're not alone. The other people have been through stuff that felt just like this, a little different because they didn't have, you know, Facebook, but they felt absolutely defeated. And like the whole system was set against them and would continue to crush them and win. And yet I'm here. So, so I'm like, huh, well, if I'm here, then, then I put like, it's like math brain, you know, it's like philosophy, logic brain. I have yeah. to like think through it and like, well, if I'm here, then that means the people that came before me somehow survived long enough for me to be here. But if they <laughs> thought they weren't going to make it yet, I made it. Then they made it too, because I am them. What? There's still a chance we might make it. So, so, and my, and my patience is restored. How do you do on the patience front? I'm like you. I, I heard you say in, in an interview I read somewhere that your natural setting is optimism. And that's <laughs> like me. It's my default yeah. setting. I'm, I'm exactly the same. My default setting is one of optimism and one of belief, which I think comes back from our childhoods of, I got this. I can do this. I can yeah. write a plan. I can bring people together. I can gather people and together right. we, can, we, can, we can make a difference. How do you know you're making a difference? As we bring this conversation oh, to a close. email. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. We have email now. I don't know how people in history did it. You just send in all this positive vibes. I have no idea if anybody's picking up what you're putting down. But now we got email and uh, I get some nice ones. And occasionally a, a DM on a Instagram or something provides hard evidence that uh, I'm not just talking to myself and, and the people we're bringing on the show. It's not just me and my wife thinking about this over dinner. There's so many folks who are eager for this. So, you know, there's data. I like data. Download numbers are proof of something. A school reached out and they wanted me to come speak on Citizenship Day. I was like, what is Citizenship Day? It's like, well, we've been listening to your podcast and we love the four principles. Mm -hmm. And so we built a curriculum around it. Amazing. And have a whole day dedicated to like citizen as a verb. We love you to come and speak and see what we're up to. I was like, That's okay, sap, something's happening. 
we're working with NCAA coaches who are, are building out a version of how to citizen for athletes in a pilot program because coaches have this special relationship with their player and they already, the metaphor is built for them. Show up and participate. You can't show up and not, you know, if you don't show up, you can't win the game. Relationships with your players, right? All that stuff is very athletic, you know, and it speaks naturally to them. So that's the evidence. We built our website out, howtocitizen.com. People are showing up for that. And I, um, I think the guests are doing things that we're just pointing to. Right. So it's almost like the work is done when I just find someone I want to talk to. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, they're, they've been doing this for, the podcast is 14 months old. No one cares. No one knows. But like, they've been doing that for 14 years or five years or 10 years of their whole life. And we're just like tunneling and shining a little light over there because other people already believe this. They may use different language, mm. slightly different words, but they're doing it. My intention in doing this show is to share information that will not only encourage you to see your place in the world differently, but also, as we like to say around here, will move you from the sidelines to the front lines of the fight for change. Bartunde left us with some words of wisdom, delivered with a dash of his trademark optimism. There are lots of people who aren't yet on the path of good citizenry mm. or activism. And what do we say to get them in the game? There's, there's a lot of possible things to say. But what occurs to me now is that this can be fun. You know, I've met great people. I've had good laughs. I've learned from folks who are doing everything from kind of mutual aid stuff in their communities to just volunteering with their sports teams to doing some COVID PPE distribution. And there's a sense of effort and struggle to some of it, but there's also a sense of fun. It's like, oh, I get to, right? This is something we get to do. We, we get to show up and participate. Like we get to build relationships. We get to use our power. The whole thing is called democracy. It's people power. It's, it's right there in the word. So let's do it. Let's do the thing we get to do and have fun while doing it. It's not guaranteed, you know, and there's a little, there's a little menace in that, but it's true. Like this doesn't have to be this way. We don't have to live in a place where we get to. So let's maintain that and, and extend it and have fun. Have fun while doing it. You don't have to be dour. I agree. And if somebody's trying to hook you on that, find somebody else. Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> There's other folks out there. There's folks who can have, help you be fun in your activism, fun in your citizening. Well, Barton, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aisha, my sister. <laughs> great show. Great vibe. If you walk away with just one thing from my conversation with Baratunde Thurston, let it be this. We need more moments of activism from more people. This is the moment in the interview when I wanted to climb up on the table, stamp my feet and just shout yes. Full-time, part-time, occasional change maker, whatever you want to call yourself, just keep doing more of what you're doing. And that anger you feel when you see all that is wrong with our world? Stop trying to bury or hurriedly dismiss it. Instead, go ahead and harness the emotion. 
alchemize what you're feeling and turn it into something constructive that will ultimately make a difference for us all. Thank you so much for listening. Please take time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Follow me at Aisha Sasay on Twitter and on Instagram at I am Aisha Sasay. The Accidental Activist is a Wonder Media Network production in partnership with Arella Productions. Executive producers are Jenny Kaplan and me, Aisha Sasay. Our producers are Brittany Martinez and Taylor Williamson. Until the next time, take care, everyone, and bye for now. No matter who you are, young or old, famous or not, it's important to know we all have the power to make a difference, to be a world changer. All it takes is a belief, a belief that what you have to offer the world is meaningful, valuable, and powerful. It's something we explore throughout this series. So if you like what you're hearing, I want to recommend another show you might like. It's called Art of Power from our friends over at WBEZ Chicago. Every week, award-winning journalist Arthi Shahani has intimate, unexpected conversations with people on how they use their power to make meaningful change. Listen to guests like President Barack Obama, who discusses redefining what it means to be a man. And Alison Felix, the most decorated Olympian in US track and field history, who talks about having to hide her pregnancy in a very painful and instructive journey. Each episode reveals insightful and candid conversations Arthi has with her guests, which is then synthesized into power lessons you can use in your daily life. From changing your career to starting an inspiring project, you'll be even more ready to take on your own big, bold goals. So check it out. Learn how your own voice, your own power can impact the world. Art of Power is out now and available wherever you get your podcasts.